0: And welcome to Time Out Coaching with Tony Garbalotto. Today, I have one of the very best British coaches, someone that has coached at the highest levels internationally, including stops with G League teams, two national team head coaching jobs and stops in Japan and Germany. A true trailblazer for British coaches internationally. I'm pleased to welcome coach Tim Lewis. Coach, how are you? you? Great to see you I'm as well. Very well. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I do want to say, you know, we've we've known each other, you know, almost our, you know, a whole kind of career, and um, you know, in some ways, have mirrored each other. Obviously, you've coached at such a such a great level. Um, so, but I mean, let's talk more about to start with to give to give with the audience let's talk about your early basketball experiences, you know, where you, you know, you started playing basketball and that whole um, situation. Cause I think it's a great story in, in that respect there. Sure. Um, you know, like, I guess like any, any kids in England, you get
1: introduced to it at um, at secondary school. And I had two teachers at secondary school who were uh, advocates for basketball. Um, and, you know, played there. But the, the, I guess my formative years with basketball we were really through the folks and saints. Um, there was a group of players there that uh, sort of took me under their wing and I ended up playing men's basketball from a really early age, to, you know, 13, 14. Um, and that was, you know, that there was also, that, that stuff was also promoted by uh, Mark Clark, Martin Clark and, and, uh, and his parents, their parents. Um, and they were, they were a catalyst in, in that for me, they, they initiated then moving on from Folkestone to go and play in the Crystal Palace when Mark was there. Um, Mark Dunning was, was running the, the junior program, um, along with, along with Roy. Um, and I had two
0: or three years there. So you actually, you actually played in the junior programs with, uh, with Roy Packham at Palace. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I'm trying to think
1: now that it was the Falcons and the Eagles and whatever else it is they call the Mark. So I was with Mark. I went up as a sort of gangly 14 year old, I think, and would, would join in with, with sort of both age groups. Um, and it, it definitely helped accelerate and, and, uh, sort of increase the interest in the game. We'd go up twice or three times a week and then games Dad, you know, mom and dad would drive me up and, that was before the motorway was there. So it was, you know, it was a painstaking journey all the way up to palace from Folkestone. Um, but I continued to play at Folkestone and, and, and that, that group of guys, they had some, you know, Mickey Fisher, um, Mark Harding and, and Nimi Sandu people that were sort of standouts in, in that Kent area that had played national league basketball, John Lingham, um, and, and that really helped because I played adult basketball at a really young age, um, and, and sort of just helped accelerate the process for me.
0: And so you, 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 you were going up, uh, on a weekly basis. Um, I think you got involved in national junior programs pretty early as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I played, I played, uh, so I ended up playing, uh,
1: for the England under 15 team ended up captaining that team. Um, and I don't, I, it, Stephen Hurd was in that team with me. And, uh, and I, I, it's hard to remember names because a lot of them never really continue to play. Um, but we played at the Aston Villa center on carpet. And uh, so I did that. And then was with the 17s with Humph and Chris. And I ended up moving to Luff's, uh Lough's travel for um, a year or so. Just because of the distance, and it was nearer, Um, but I ended up playing on on those national teams, and those were, you know, obviously great experiences in terms of just solidifying my, you know, as any kid, I played a lot of rugby and cricket and county stuff with that, and it just solidified my my real love for basketball. Dad played when he was younger and was a fanatic about basketball as well as rugby, and and um, it all just came to you know, came together early success in terms of playing at a school level then a county level and a national team level. Um, and then that's what drove me to go to the States at, you know, 16 after finishing,
0: you know, O levels here. So you went to high school, uh, and then subsequently to, to college. I mean, this is a lot of basketball, um, experience for, for a young British person. And specifically you've been touched by a lot of good coaches already. Um, what about your experiences in America at high school and college? So I, I, I ended up going to a, uh, um, Don Bosco Tech in
1: downtown Boston. It was right in the middle of the red light district. Um, and it was, so it was a really unique experience in terms of just transitioning from a seaside town in Kent to a, uh, you know, a, a downtown environment in in Boston. And I ended up doing three years there. Um, and that was always the plan. I went in as a sophomore I, and I ended up living with the guy that the guy called Jack McMahon who lived with uh, who Martin Clark had lived with prior to going to uh, Boston College. Martin had played at Don Bosco as well. Um, and things didn't really work out. Jack helped in many ways, played in a lot of summer leagues. I was playing in Roxbury in the summer, which um, was was invaluable. Um, you know, started to be involved with Bay State team games and stuff like that. And then it did, that situation just didn't really work. And I came back and uh, I wasn't actually wasn't going to go back. Um, didn't enjoy that first year, just the home life side of it. And, uh, had started looking at other careers, police or the army, or, you know, maybe going back to school and my high school coach guy called John Grady, uh, an Irishman from Boston, a family of four and, um, just said, come live with us. So I ended up going back for my senior, my junior and senior year in high school. And, uh, had a, you know, had a great, amazing, uh, opportunities, um, you know, that came out of that and never really, I didn't at the time, never really understood the system. Um, and I think, you know, now had I known more, I was, I was already 3000 miles away from home and I had some opportunities to go and uh, offers to go to schools on the West coast. And it just seemed like, you know, it's 6,000 miles away from home. And at that time, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers were you know, so it just seemed like a a million miles away from your family and the, this fairy tale, you know, sort of situation where your parents are going to come watch you play. Well, my parents came and watch me play once, and uh, when I was in college, and you know, to this day, I regret maybe not exploring those West Coast opportunities. But I ended up playing at UNH. I had injuries and was back and forth, but you know, enjoyed my career there and ended up playing for a guy called. Jerry Friel for the first two years, who was an exceptional human being, um, had been a tremendous coach and just had, you know, had found it really hard in the last number of years before I got there to, to recruit. And then he was replaced by a guy called Jimmy Boyle. And Jimmy's been, was one of the lead assistants at Chicago for many years. And we've remained close. Um, and that whole experience um, I mean you can always probably say you could do do more and do better with it but it was, a, it was an awesome experience and then I came back to the U, UK and um, ended up going back to Palace really um, had explore, was exploring opportunities to go and play in Europe and of course at that time it was it was more difficult so sure. the rules were different um, and basically Roy had reached out and said you know we we're rekindling and restarting re- the Palace program and Um, you know he sold it and it was you know I ended up spending I think six or seven years there with him and then uh, uh, with him around with uh, Jim Walsh was coaching for the first part and then Alton obviously took over so yeah
0: uh, yeah, Palace through and through so I I Is there any time in this period, you know, all through your playing, you know, and you're obviously you're coming back to the UK, um, you know, you're, you're, I'm assuming you started, you enrolled to to be in, in teacher training at that moment. Or what, how did that happen um, to get into teaching? Yep. But the question more is, so about, I, you know, with all of this, um, was there any thoughts about coaching at any time? Did you think that that was a route that you wanted to go? Because, you know, obviously you've been involved with quite a lot of coaches up until that moment. Sure. I um, So I came back and I, I uh, went to
1: Borough Road, West London. Uh, you know, Andy Powson and Graham were there. And... Um, the reason for that was you know, just at the time it was really semi-professional basketball wherever you know you'd go unless you got yeah. to Europe and stuff. And I, I wanted to play. I had had the injuries with knees and whatever, but I wanted to come back and I wanted an opportunity to play more. And ultimately, that's you know I ended up playing with Palace and then um, was was involved with the England program at a time where there was an abundance of players. Um, and then ended up playing for Wales and then played for the GB select group with Laszlo. Um, and uh, I I always knew I wanted to be involved with basketball in a full-time capacity in terms of playing or coaching. But unfortunately, England is one of those places in the world where you, and I think, you know, with the exception of probably a handful of people now in, in the country, you, you still have to supplement, supplement your basketball obsession with a full-time job. So I ended up teaching because that was what would allow me to continue to play and then obviously get involved. And at one point I was, I was playing, um, I was teaching and I was coaching the, you know, county and then regional teams, you know, the, those regional teams with, um, you know, around the time when, really when Richard Midgley and people like that were starting to come on the scene. And obviously, you know, Richard was with you and everything at at London Towers. So I've always had that desire to coach and, or teach. Um, And for me, it was always, it was just an opportunity to do it. it. And I don't know. Now I have been out of British basketball, the environment there, but I, I still get the feeling that for the majority of people, there's no way that you can do it as a full-time coach. Yeah. And, I mean, and, there, there and it's is... disappointing that we're, you know, we're, you know, we're nearly 20 years on and it, it hasn't, hasn't really changed. No, um, no. and, and I mean, to do the job correctly, you need to be doing it full-time. Yeah. And, uh, that's uh, a great, it, you know, that's, that's the, it's a disappointment for me is that there are some talented coaches we've talked about before. And we'll talk about again, as we come through, um, that just never been afforded the opportunity to do it properly. And have they, you know, had they been given the opportunity or still given the
0: opportunity to do that,
1: then, um, I think British basketball potentially could be
0: in a better place. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take, we'll pick up on that point, um, shortly. Um, what, um, So now you're you're in you start to get yourself into your teacher teacher role um, you you start towards the end of this playing career and you start, like you said, you're coaching these regional teams, what was kind of like the tipping point and where did you see actually, you know, I, I really do have a a talent for this. And I really think that I can be, um, you know, I can do more. What, what was that? What was that real, that point that you felt was the the time that that happened? I, when I was playing at palace, there was, you know, I got hurt and,
1: there was an opportunity to help Alton. Um, and I was also doing some stuff with some of the junior teams at the time. And, um, I think it was just that feeling and that opportunity that you could help drive things. And, you know, my, you know, philosophy, you know, has it changed and we will come to that as well, but has, has very much, has been pretty much the same all the way through. It's obviously adapted in terms of certain things that you, you know, you, you approach it and how you deal with it. But, um, I think, My time at palace made me realize, you know, I got hurt and, um, I got divorced in 2006 and I'd always wanted the opportunity to, to coach more. Uh, And my frustration was that, you know, you'd have to travel to London or, um, and there was no, I would have left teaching had there been a full-time opportunity to do basketball and that for whatever reason, that opportunity in the UK never presented itself. Um, and and we'll get to that point in terms of creating opportunities not only for myself but for more importantly for young British players. Um, and so when 2006 came along and I'd been working with national teams and I you know made some connections, the opportunity presented itself to go to Spain. Um, and it you know Spain turned out to be a little different to what I had was was probably going to expect expecting it to be in terms of just the way that it was managed and what was going on. But that. Was probably, you know, past had been a turning point. Knowing I wanted to do it, but then finding that opportunity and seizing that opportunity would have been, you know, two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, when.
0: Um, Coach, just when just op- um, just explain that situation. I think that's really important because um, I'm going to ask you later on about you know, your advice to younger coaches to, you know, talk about the international route. You know, I still credit you as, you know, one of the trailblazers of, of, of British coaches, you know, internationally, you know, you were one of the first coaches to make this, you know, push. And so here you are in 2006, you go to Spain, explain the situation because it's, it's not just your run of the mill Academy or your run of the mill situation. This is, you know, super elite level,
1: yeah. I mean, we, you know, I made a connection with, with Rob Ariana and, uh, um, you know, unfortunately things with Rob and I didn't transpire. We, we, we digressed on certain things. Um, you know, And I look back at it now, Rob, Rob was a, was definitely a, a trailblazer in terms of what, he how he approached things and what he thought about. And the experience is a remarkable experience. We had an opportunity to work with some high level players, obviously Ryan ended up out in, in Spain, although not connected to the Academy, but you know, Joel had been out there and, um, it really opened your eyes in terms of how, you know, what career, a career in basketball, you know, what it looks like the day to day running of it, the intensity, the hours, the thing and doing it for no next to no money. Mm. And that for me was the biggest thing. I, 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 I took H I, I an opportunity presented itself and I took that opportunity and it wasn't based on, on money. And it wasn't, it was based on, on what was presented as a British coach. That was the opportunity I had been looking for to, to grow and expand. And, you know, I've grown a lot over the last 15 years and, you know, I've been around some great people, had some great opportunities. Um, and, you know going from from England to to being involved with the Academy you know
0: was, was pretty raw you know h- happily open to admit that now, um, and just to explain that's CBA which is you know that's was still one of the biggest uh Academy is in you know certainly in europe and uh has produced multiple um international players uh euro league players Absolutely. And, and nba players Absolutely. So, yeah and they've done a there. tremendous job in terms of moving
1: it forward you know yeah. he's you know credit to rob and he stuck with it he had a vision we both had a vision and um you know it, he he's pursued it you know some of it wasn't to my liking and you know, the way that it's done, but, um, he, he, you know, he's continued to, to, to progress with that and has, has created something that, many, many clubs or academies aspire to be.
0: And at this time, uh, had you, um, because obviously you were part of the England national junior setup. um, you know, you had been doing a lot of, uh, kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, helping with those programs and then getting yourself through those systems. What, what were you around this time? Were you the under 16 national team coach? What was the situation there?
1: I think it was under 18s at that time. I heard, um, it might've been 16s. I can't, the timeline gets a little blurry with all the stuff that's yeah. gone on, but you know, I had an opportunity to, uh, basically initially work with Rick Woolridge, uh, was the first head coach in national teams that I worked with. And then, um, from being with Rick, I went to the under 16s as a head coach. And then I had an opportunity to work with Dave Titmus as an assistant with the 18s. Um, and then had an opportunity to become the head coach of the 18s. um, and then from there, obviously, moved on to being the twenty with the twenties for for a number of years. Um, so
0: let's, uh, let, let's just let's just hold it, hold it, hold it there, and let me ask you another question. Up until this kind of two thousand and six, two thousand and seven um, area, and then we start getting involved, um, you know, a little bit after that, and your whole career starts taking off in a different in a different sphere. Who were your biggest influences up until that moment um and did you have someone that you felt was a mentor or you know someone that you were you know looking towards you know like hey i'm gonna start you know taking some of that philosophy on board was were there a set of coaches that you know really influenced you you know for for that early part of your career you know i i was lucky enough to to be around
1: uh Humph and Chris Morgan and, you know, both of them very different characters. Humph um, was very old school, um, in his approach, but at the same time was, um, was sort of advanced in terms of where basketball well, was. Humpf had always wanted to play fast and quick and, you know, with pace and, you know, extend the floor, play with pressure. And those are things that I'd always loved about basketball in terms of when I started coaching. So um Humph and Chris were were definitely sort of people that at the very beginning of my career helped um in my coaching direction. I mean Mark Dunning was was ultimately helped be and Roy were responsible for helping me uh move forward with being in um, in the states, and really, sort of buying into that. Uh, you know, both of those visited my house in Folkestone and helped with the direction and the introduction to Mark and Chris Clark and things. But the coaching direction would have come early on from Hump. Um, Interesting. Uh, and Chris, in terms of the, that junior level, obviously being around Southeast England and looking at how how we, you know, played in the regional stuff. Um, and then there was a void it, you know, I got to that point where, you know, the BBL, Chris and obviously Nick were, were coaching in the BBL at, at that time. But, um, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't really a, a lot of people. I, I think it was more, I had opportunities to be around, like I was around Laszlo and, you know, he took some stuff that Laszlo did and, uh, you know, around, around, um, you know dave titmus and you know you'd take some of the stuff that dave did and and then obviously the way that that rick sort of ran a program in his sort of very sort of reserved nature and manner about uh, you know about things so there was a, col- a collective of people that uh i guess contributed but i've for me it was a lot of it was i would watch basketball and i would i determine myself this is this is what i like about it this is what i you know, I, I want to do. Um, and way before I, you know, as we move forward down the line, I mean, Nick and Chris have been, you know, Chris, especially, um, have been very influential in, in just adapting my philosophy and, um, the way that I want to play, but, uh, you know, just watching and then uh, sort of implementing and adapting. And I've always, always, As you have, you wanted to play quicker and in a way that we're playing the game now—not drawn out in the half court and um, you know, really developing players that know and understand how to play basketball. So, um, I think those people were key. And then, you know, college was difficult because I didn't—you know—I got hurt and didn't play as much as I'd like to have done. Um, And then, ultimately, I played with Alton, and Alton was um, unbelievable. Played with him, and then he was obviously coaching it. And you know, Alton's just perception of the game and vision of the game was was eye opening in terms of just the things that, that he did. So, you know, he he definitely had uh, again. You know, small pieces of that puzzle get put together by a number of individuals. I wouldn't say there was you know one person. I think you take things from a variety of people, um, and you build those or put them together, piece them together to develop your philosophy as you move forward. So uh, I I wouldn't say there was, there was one particular person that I would attribute it to.
0: After CBA, um, what was the next stop? Um, What, what was the next move? Uh, What, what was the the, the link then to?
1: So we, uh, we came back, I came back to the UK and, um, really wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go in and I'd always had a frustration that having worked with so many of the youth through the national teams and and regional teams that oftentimes there were some there would be players that you know potentially had uh the the ability to play at you know high levels but were never afforded the opportunity to play in the u k you know the the BBL would have a handful of people, but we always seemed to just they you know missing out the loop. That they, they just there was a section there was a uh, a part of that progression for British basketball for younger players that was was missing. And uh, it was it was at the same time that the the Ace program sort of started to kick off. And uh, I came back from from Spain and I having seen what was going on there and there were a number of British children that had players that had come over, you know, why, why was it we couldn't provide the opportunity to, to, um, to do the same for them in the UK. And obviously ACE came in and that created an opportunity to create an academic environment and an academy. And then we created the BBL and, you know, for whatever reason, we got, uh, you know, a lot of stick about creating that program. Um, the intent was never, um, early on. I mean, to, to win the BBL, the, opp- the, the intent was always as stated to, to give British players that clearly had an opportunity to play at a higher level, uh, the opportunity to play. And, uh, we made the decision not to hire Americans. We had a couple of Aussies that were British passport holders. And again, you know, would benefit from being in a system. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't an easy, you know, three years in terms of doing it, but I felt that it was, uh, a, a very successful program. Um, and had we been able to continue, uh, the progression, we had an opportunity, we had, uh, something on the table to try and move pe- move everything to London, very similar to what has happened since we've, we've left. Mm. Um, I think that we potentially could have had something that would have been, uh, would have grown and create it you know and as with everything in the uk i mean i invested my own money in it um we had we had some great sponsors that were with us and then when we were rejected out of the london scenario um you know those that that those people decided that that, you know there was i think like a lot of times they just
0: didn't see the value in being involved in british basketball at that time in terms of the progression of it Again, um, you know your your modesty is obviously you know um, coming through. Let, let's let's explain. You know you set up the Essex Pirates. Um, I mean, for sure, you know four of those players um, you know went on to you know really well incredible careers in some ways. Um, so please explain. You know the four that were you know the of that first cohort. Yeah, I mean. We,
1: obviously, I'd been involved with the under 20s and could see that there were some talented children, talented players that um, we could either send them to the US really into an unknown, not knowing what would happen. Would they develop? Would they play? Or we could put them in an environment. And believe me, I mean, you know, I'm the first one to say that was it perfect in terms of what we had with everything at the Pirates? No, no, it wasn't. but it was a, a process in terms of moving that forward. Um, but, you know, most notably, we we had uh, Miles, Hessen, Jamel Anderson, um, Zach Gachette, and um, Colin Singh were the four mainstays. We had um, a number of younger players who were within the academy, and the plan, had we moved forward, was the next year they would then be involved coming out of mm-hmm out of high school here, high school or college. Um, so the intention was for those guys just to play, to have give them a, just a highlight and ultimately for them, you know, if it was for a club that, you know, whether it be Leicester or whether it was Everton or where they can move on to a better environment where they can get paid, you know, where they can actually fulfill, you know, the opportunity that presents itself or, live up to the, the, the sort of standing that they clearly had the ability to do um, and that was that was it first and foremost was to, to give the these players an opportunity to play and to show the rest of the country that we have players here that are more than capable but you have to invest in them
0: and you have to you have to believe in them and you have to take time to develop them. And, and, I, and, uh, and I have to say that, you know, these minus, there are very, very few players that have been produced and are playing in the BBL at this moment or in Europe or even on a higher level um, that have been homegrown. And you for sure you know have taken a number of the only other player i can that that comes to mind directly who's really you know a top, has been a top player is Darius Defoe um you know really and truthfully everyone else has had an american experience and here you have these players especially obviously Miles Hessen which was an incredible um spot and that development i mean did you were you enjoying, you must've enjoyed that experience of working on the floor every single day. That must've been the, the thing that was, you know, the, the the best situation for you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we had a great
0: group of, of,
1: you know, young men involved with the program and uh, it was, you know, it was high, highly rewarding to see their improvement and their, you know, the, the growth in their confidence. You know, we, you know, as an organization, we can't, you know, Jamel came out of Dougie, you know, initially, you know, Jamel was around Dougie. And, you know, so Dougie has to take a considerable credit for Jamel's formative, you know, years. Uh, Miles was in Birmingham, you know, so, and he was around programs in Birmingham. And we, I think what we, you know, Colin was in Liverpool and with, um, uh, with Toxic. Mr. Mooney, uh, yeah, with Henry, uh, yeah, yeah, with Henry, and um, you know, Zach was at East London, and credit needs to be given to the people that you know brought <laughs> brought them into the game and 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 just gave them the opportunity to start. And we Absolutely. we all we did was we, we I think we we saw the opportunity to provide them a, for for them a window to really showcase themselves and prove that we we are capable of producing young talented british players um, not to go the route of just taking these ready-made from somewhere else and supplement them at the the expense of what we wanted to do Mm. so i felt that we we just we basically were a continuation of what those coaches from those areas had done with those players and they couldn't find or they couldn't provide that opportunity. And I think that's what I, what we tried to do. Um, and we, you know, results were, were not what was driving us. It it was clear. It was, you know, and if we had gone another five years and we only ever won five games, but we had players that had been given the opportunity to be exposed. Jamel's had an opportunity to go and play in in Australia. He's been in Spain. He's been, you know, Miles is doing incredibly well in in France. Um,
0: To me, it's a success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's important to say that, uh, would you say that now... 2008 um, was when we started working for each other. Would you say that this was a was a big turning point? You know, in in your career when, you know, uh, Chris Finch obviously you know calls us both to be be his assistants on the first GB team um, yep. that was assembled. Uh, would you say that that was a was a was a big turning point? Or I mean, because obviously he's had such an Im- influence on both of both of our careers um, in. in in so many ways. Yeah.
1: I think I I probably would go back a couple of years. It was actually when I first took over the men, the under 20 program after Jeff. Um, and we, I think that's when for me, things really started to take a a shape in terms of, um, I had an opportunity to go to Commonwealth games in 2006, 2007 in, uh, in, in Melbourne. Um, so that was one of the first things. But the under twenties was definitely a turning point, I think, because it, what it did is it put you in contention with teams in Europe, and we could, and we beat teams. I mean, we we competed really well. We should have, you know, they changed the rules one year. We missed out by a game. Um, you know, to get to the A division, you know, and we it was just it was hurdles. But what I did, what I felt was that it put not only me but the players in a, a position of. Oh, British basketball can compete at this level, and oh, he could coach at this level. or he can, and that I think definitely helped me moving forward in terms of the my, the, you know, just the performances we had in Europe in terms of playing, uh, beating certain teams, and then ultimately being involved with the GB program, being invited in, you know, when you were with Chris uh, to be part of that um, was a was obviously an eye-opener to work at that level Uh, it's obviously strengthened your resume in terms of when other teams now started to look at you Um, and obviously you know through that period um, uh, we you know the um, pirates and I was in Spain or whatever that combination of all that stuff then helped for the next step in terms of once the Olympics have come and gone in terms of then having a window to go and coach
0: overseas. And that, um, that, that step, was a, a really interesting step so you, you know you you obviously went through the whole I mean is there anything you want to you know talk about with, with, with the GB cycle with the Olympic cycle I mean um, we're, we're, we're two of the people that are, that are in there um, Coach McKeskey obviously is uh, over in America at the moment and then the other two guys uh, happen to be now on the same team um, so one's an NBA champion it's funny how life works out um, Absolutely. and, he, yeah. and any any thoughts on on that process? Um, I mean,
1: you know the whole the whole GB process was a, an incredible experience. Um, you know, from start to finish, in terms of being involved with the 20s program, um, the you know, I give a lot of credit as my as I moved as I move forward. Warwick can definitely became a mentor to me in terms of you know, approach to coaching and stuff and was influential in, in really making you open your eyes and think about different ways and methods as was Chris Spice. You know, Chris was very good in terms of, you know, talking about how, you know, you know developing leadership groups and, uh, you know, styles of coaching and, and things like that. So I think I was extremely fortunate enough to be in, involved right from the start with, um, you know, Chris um, and, and then Warwick um, who had come from an Australian background. Chris was obviously hockey, but a background, and, and Warwick was from basketball, but a background of sporting excellence in terms of developing coaches. And I thought, I think I, I, I look back at that, and and you know, feel very lucky to have been involved or had the opportunity to 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 experience and learn from them and be guided by them. So you know, I do look at Warwick at times as. As, as a mentor in my latter years, in, in involved in all that stuff, yeah. And I continue to remain in contact with Warwick. Um, I, you know, I felt he he was. Ex- I thought he did a lot for British basketball that maybe he didn't didn't yeah, always for. get enough credit for. Mm. Um, I, you know, his a uh, he, he had a great approach to the game. Um, he was a basketball man through and through, and he was an educator. Um, so, you know, I felt you know, that was one side of it. And then the opportunities that Chris obviously afforded me to be, you know, and my role varied as yours did, you know, we were both flexible. We would do whatever was needed by the team, uh, whether it was, you know, on the bench scouting, you know, and that again was invaluable in terms of moving forward and
0: understanding what, what you need to do to be a professional coach. Sure. And did you, uh, what, what did you, did you change? Did you feel, you know, working with Chris that you, you know, started to change your philosophy on, you know, how you taught offense or how you taught defense? Was there, was there stuff that you, you know, really changed at that time? Yeah. I mean,
1: I'd always, I have always had the philosophy of, you know, playing with pace and tempo and, um, You've always been a motion offense guy, an open I've offense always guy. Always been, yeah. And so, a lot of what Chris did made a lot of sense right away. And um, but I mean, ultimately, the answer to that question is yes, of course. I mean, working with two guys like Nick and Chris and and Paul, Paul was my assistant, it was with, You know, yeah. the under twenties. Um, you can't help not modify and think and think. I mean, Chris is an um, you know highly intellectual um man and you know the thought that goes through the game. You know, both of them, Nick is, you know, both geniuses in terms of the way the game is now being played and you know at the forefront of what, what's happening. So absolutely they you know it's the stuff that they talked about and how they did it and um was was influential as you move forward. Like I said, you know, earlier it's there's these pocket windows you know, pockets that you go through and you pick up things with people that you work with. And, uh, you know, as, as my time has gone on, you know, both of, I've been, you know, I've been privileged enough to be around both of them, uh, a lot. Um, and, you know, absolutely. They've helped shape and and drive and move forward your, your thinking and philosophies about how the game's played or, or how you're going to coach. Okay.
0: From the Olympic games, you, you went to Germany. Um, uh, You know, uh, you obviously, you know, talk a little bit about that process and what were some of the things that, you know, you saw there and uh, you know, that were really, you know, started to, to, you know, to get you to understand what, what that level was, you know, going to be in Europe and the rest of the world. You know, I left the left the Olympics not knowing
1: really what you know what was gonna gonna happen. I touched sort of my feet, touched down in the BBL briefly again, and it wasn't necessarily the best experience. Um, and really didn't know what was gonna happen. Um, and believe me, like trying to convince teams in Europe to hire a British coach that's never coached professionally overseas is not an easy task. And unfortunately the younger coaches that, you know, now coach in England and have aspirations to, to move overseas. Uh, it's not,
0: you know, I, I, you know, I don't envy them. It's, it, it's a hard place to be. Um, Dude. Do you do you have a just before you answer the next question about Germany? Do you, do, you, do you, so let me pick up on that point. Um, I'm very passionate about a point. We you know we talk about it all of the time. Um, you, would you have done something different? Is there a, is there a, is there something that you would have done differently? Because I know for a fact that it, what I know now, I would have used our contacts to go and put myself as the third assistant on a Euro league team or a Euro cup team or champions league team. Um, and, and work my way through there because I think that's really the, the, the way forward. Do you, do you feel that? Or do you just feel, you know, again, it's, it's a lack of respect for British coaches and it's a really uneven playing field. I think, uh,
1: there's, there's definitely a lack of respect. I mean, you know, the first
0: thing somebody says when you know, when they
1: find out you're brilliant, you like, You coach basketball. Like, I mean, it's like they play basketball in England. I mean, that's the first question that people or statement people make. There's no doubt that in any professional sport it's about networking in terms of knowing people that can open opportunities and doors, but you have to back yourself. And you you have to you can't just take on jobs because somebody gives you an opportunity. You have to be proved that you're good enough to do that. And you have to be prepared to work and you have to be prepared to do it for very little money. Um, and you have to be prepared to do that for five to 10 years. Um, I had started that process. Like I had, you know, obviously the, you know, the thing in Spain and then coming back here, but there was poss- there was an opportunity possibly to go out to Rio Grande with Chris and work there. It just, but, you know, visas and stuff. It was, you know, everything. And then this opportunity came up in Germany and and obviously Torsten was a, an assistant for Chris. Uh Torsten then coached in Edinburgh. Um and I simply sent Torsten an email and said, This is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. I would like to, to coach overseas and I will come and do it for no nothing. I, I'm just I'm ha- I just want the opportunity. And you know we talked back and forth, and then an opportunity arise, arose in in Germany to go and coach what was their pro b team region and liga, and then also work with the uh, uh, the Bundesliga team and uh, I mean I didn't even see the contract. I said yes, you know it was a, it, because it was an opportunity to to finally get your foot in the door and do something, and I've always believed that if you give me the opportunity you know, I'm going to back myself and you're going to like what you get, you got to convince people to do that. So that's what I did, you know, and I basically ended up going out there. They, they were a phenomenal club to work for, um, Ratsia farm Ulm, uh, unbelievable management group, obviously Torsten, you know, Torsten basically just opened the door and said, you do what you need to do. And we would, you know, Torsten and I would meet, we'd talk about philosophy. I'd help with, you know, and I had an opportunity around their practices and player development and then running all the junior stuff. And there's a number of those junior players now that have moved on and play are playing either at Ratsy Farm or are playing at a higher level. Yeah. You know, Daniel Tice was on my pro-B team. Unbelievable. You know, Unbelievable. You know and, and he then moved on and um, you know, I don't take the credit for development Daniel Pice. He was there for whatever, but that, <laughs> like, that's the level
0: like, player. Like I don't take the, the, the credit for Paul Zipser as well. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, <laughs> you know, it just, you know, but that, that, that explained the level and the organization that Germany had in terms of their development for basketball
0: in the country. And, and um, you did know. Did you, did you feel that that was the first time that you were immersed in this, you know, higher, uh, I mean, you obviously you're with Chris and uh, Nick and the GB team and us, you know, we were all together in the summers, but it was that the first time you felt, you know, Hey, this is really high level and I'm being Absolutely. challenged to get better. Um, I'm not just uh, yeah. going through the paces, you know, like, uh, I can... it was, yeah, it was,
1: it was, it was the first time, to be thrown into a full on full-time professional environment. I'd always felt that I had a professional approach approach to whatever we did anyway, whether it was regional teams, whether it was national teams, whether it was, so I wasn't, it wasn't something I got there and thought, Holy cow, like this is, I felt that I belonged there. Um, I didn't feel out of depth. Um, I think that obviously being around you know you guys in the summer and having had an opportunity to do stuff through Essex and then national teams you know allowed you to develop a philosophy in the way that you want to do things and like I said to you before Warwick and those guys had helped you know guide you. But in terms of like financial support, facilities, you know, transportation, like it was like nothing else. You know, it doesn't come, doesn't even come. come there's no comparison to, to what we have in the UK and um, and the way that they manage the players, you know, the way that they were, they were buying players and selling players um, to bring them into programs from wherever that may be. Um, so it was the first, you know, definitely the first um, experience of a fully professional, um, situation, you know, and I mean, you look at Ratsy now, I mean, they, they're building an orange campus, they've got brand new arena, I mean just a phenomenal organization,
0: phenomenal organization. From Germany which is one of the most professional leagues in Europe you then yep. go even to a potentially even more professionalism you know, and you go to Japan um, talk quickly about uh, that experience um, going to Tokyo and uh, coaching um, in, in the B-League there? Right. So I uh, –
1: um, the opportunity came out of the blue. I mean, I'd done uh, – so like I say, you know, I think you've always got to be prepared to back yourself. And I backed myself in Germany and we, we did – I mean, which I think we did a really good job in terms of development of players. We won. Nobody expected us to win. We were playing in the pro B against, you know, seasoned professionals that had dropped down with young kids and we were winning and we got to the, to the, uh, um, you know, the, the end of the year and we, we were competitive. I think we got finals or finals. I had semis or finals. I can't, I can't remember what we got to. Um, and, uh, you know, Miles had joined us, you know, Miles had joined us. He was sort of at a at a point in his career where he didn't know there was no direction. No. And uh, trying to convince Thomas Stoll and and these guys that there's a kid in England that six 6'5 that could come and play here and could potentially and could practice with the BBL. I mean, it probably went two or three weeks and they wouldn't you know. They were, so we brought Miles in and they saw him one practice and they were like, we're signing them. Yeah. So, um, that, that whole year, uh, in terms of the development of players and the progression, um, there's a guy, John Patrick, who runs Lewisburg, who you all know. Um, I got a phone call from John Patrick, who I'd known from working Nike camps, uh, you know, years gone back, um, was coaching at Lewisburg and he reached out and he said, listen, I got a job in Japan. He said, I think you'd be a great fit. Having watched what you've done this year with the players, would you be interested? I didn't even ask what the money was. I didn't, I didn't, I had to, I'm telling you to this day, I can't even tell you what was in the contract. Like it was, I said, I just immediately said yes, because it was an opportunity for me now again to grow and I didn't care about what the money was. Um, all I wanted was an opportunity to step up, the next rung of the coaching opportunities. And, uh, you know, Japan is you, you've worked there. Japan's an interesting country in terms of it, you know, and you very much reliant on a translator sure, and then, and then people within the organization that that you feel you can trust. And, you know, I I had a great experience in Japan and we were, we, we sort of teetered on the edge of being really good. And then, we just never quite got to that point. We could never get over the the tipping point. And there was a lot of, you know, uh, politics stuff going on at the club. It was a, it was a, it was a, uh, company team. Um, but the experience in Japan in order to now expand your level of coaching and, you know, just organization and preparation and, uh, was invaluable, you know, totally invaluable. And, uh, you know, Japan is one of the one of the few countries I would definitely go back and, uh, and work in and, and have an opportunity to to do it. I've since been back as a consultant to to work with one of the top women's teams. Sure. Um, but
0: uh, again, and, you know, you gotta back and would, yourself and take those opportunities to present it. And that was more because, you know, you're getting a lot of repetitions on the floor, you're getting repetitions in the games. Um, are you starting to change, you know, some of your coaching habits, you know, philosophy at that time? Um, yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, you know, know, adjusting how you run practices or length of practices or, you know, developing drills that pertain to the philosophy that you have and stuff that you want to run. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more breakdowns and things. And, And obviously the way we played was not very Japanese. Um, yeah, and you've been there, and you know you understand what that means and you know the Japanese players want to be told what to do each Definitely. section of of your possession, and suddenly, to for them to be given some freedom and to run open and you know we're running early stuff and only running uh you know dead ball situations or when we really need to, sets and stuff was a real shift in culture for them. And uh, it's, it's been really interesting because of course, Lamas has come in with the men's national team and he's starting to do more and more of that. And as, as you watch Japanese, especially the top leagues in Japan, you see now there's a lot more freedom in the game. Players are starting to read and react and, and stuff. So I thought we were, you know, we were actually probably a little ahead of, uh, i say a little ahead of our time, but had it been a year or two later and they, you know, there was this, Sort of, they they uh,
0: accepted. <laughs> That the game was moving forward, then we may have been in a better position. But uh. I also I also think that um, now, for me being there, um, I mean, it's culturally and and also understanding the tempo and of that league because it's it's really hard to you know anyone you know I went there believing that um, oh I coached in the BBL I know how to coach back to backs, but when you have to go Saturday and Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, and then a Wednesday thrown in between, and then a Saturday and Sunday that's a completely different rhythm and uh, you have to develop a whole different strategy to, you know, how you prepare your team throughout the week yeah. and the rest aspects of those stuff.
1: So, I mean, I think, I think uh, there's no question that being around a BBL prepares you for um, many of the challenges that you may face elsewhere because you, you know, you do face challenges in the BLBL, BBL with money and transportation and accommodation and players and salaries and et cetera, et cetera um i think that you know the level of the japanese league is consider you know is considerably higher in terms of all of that stuff mm. um and i would say going back and i think you know chris yourself nick would all put their hands up and agree that having been around the bbl environment one of the ben- one of the i think one of the biggest benefits is that it having to to deal with the day-to-day things that you would have to deal with in the BBL. And you know, this, cause you were in it long-term, put you in a position where, when I can't, you know, we're, we're, we're going to travel by, you know, sleep a train instead of a, of a flight. Like, dude, you have no idea. I used to travel by minibuses up and down the motorway <laughs> to Newcastle, right? Yeah.
0: Nope. I thought like it just, I thought when you rang me one day and uh, when we were talking and you said, um, you know, we're staying in the hotel um, before yeah. our home game, and I said, no, 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 what? You are away, and you said, no, 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 we're yeah. at home, and I was yeah. like, what? What's this guy talking about? And now, you know, obviously, yeah. I understand. You know, you, you know, money is no object, and uh, yeah. you know, the the the, the players arriving. In peak peak scenario, I mean, we were we would travel one hour, less than an hour to Tokyo and go the day before the day before the game and stay in a hotel. It's you know it's crazy. So. so
1: I think I think for the likes you know for like I say for you know Chris Nick you me people that have coached and then moved on to environments in Europe where people look at it and think look, we're really sorry we can't do this, but you know this the BBL prepares you for that. I mean, there's nothing, there is no challenge too great when you move forward in coaching um, because of, the, you know, the restrictions you face. And that, you know, that's just, unfortunately that's part of the league. It doesn't have the money that you have elsewhere and the budgets. And, you know, so when I think that's also something that helps when you go and coach at these environments overseas and you're, you know, you get Serbian coaches that are jumping up and down on the sideline because they don't have something or whatever in your life. And your, your approach is, hey, no problem. I'll deal with having four guys tonight for practice or, you know, seven guys for practice because it's become part of what you've done for 15 years. You've coached in the BBL and you've experienced it all. Yeah. So I think that makes you harder
0: um, and just uh, more resilient to, 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 to being taking these jobs. So From Japan, uh, you go to the what was the D-League and is now the G-League. Um, yep. Incredible. Uh, I think just one point I want to make to the audience first. Um, it's embarrassing that I have to... Uh, go through this and explain um, and you have to explain where you were um, considering this is we're talking about the MBA D-League you know and that's something that um, you know as, a, as, a, as a, a basketball culture we have to change um, I, I'm pretty certain if you did this now I would think that Mark Woods and, and, and Hoops Fix and Sam would pick up on this and maybe make it a story but um, and Anyway, do, you can take it away and say um, you went to the D League um, and uh, w- what was your first stop there? So I was uh, basically hired by Phoenix to
1: um, be part of uh, the, the G League team in Bakersfield, which is now defunct. It sort of got it got moved to Northern Arizona, Northern Arizona sold it to D- Detroit and you know, whatever. So, uh, a fan, an unbelievable experience. You know the year working with uh, um, you know high-level players that were sent down, um, high-level players that were in the program trying to get back. Uh, You know we made we won the showcase that year uh, in Santa Cruz. We, we, uh, I think we were first at the break. Um, We're highly competitive all year. Fell apart a little bit in the playoffs, Um, but. And again, another level, you know, like, even though it was a G League, I mean, there was, you know, no expense spared in terms of travel, accommodation, you know, when you would do it at a lower level, in terms, you know, it's not, you know, you're not staying at five star or hotels, but you're, everything done was done super professionally and you're dealing with high level players. You're learning to deal, you know, one-on-one and have relationships with those players. Um, and you're exposed to high level coaching day in, day out at not only within practice, but in the games that you play. Not only with your head coach, but with head coaches from other teams in that league. Um, and then from there, um, I moved to Toronto the following year to to the nine o five, and uh, you know work with a guy Jesse Mermas, who's now lead assistant at the uh, the Sacramento Kings, and would have an opportunity to to work with players go in and do individual workouts. So I would, um, Andy Greer, who has been a long time Van Gundy guy was in Toronto, ran the defense and would work out Bismack with Tombo and a couple of other guys. And I would go in and work with them in the mornings then go back to practice. And then, you know, we'd have games and, um, obviously, you know, we have CC players from that environment now working and playing overseas in terms of the work that you did with them. So, you know, you're exposed and you're part of an NBA organization and being in the same city in Toronto, you were regarded as, I mean, you were hired both by both teams. You're hired by the Phoenix Suns and you're hired by the Toronto Raptors. And then your remit is to help develop players for their, for their program. So phenomenal experience by being around, you know, just high level basketball. Obviously Nick was in town too. So we got an opportunity to spend a lot of time together to talk about basketball and, you know, you know, other things off the court, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not an easy environment to, to get into. And again, you, you know, you, it's for the likes of you and I, it's not good enough just to be somebody's guy. You have to prove that you're capable of being Mm. in that environment. And, you know, you asked earlier, and I think, you know, the accumulation of my experiences that I had the route that I had taken, taking jobs for next to no money, you know, opportunity over money, uh, has driven, you know, my progression all the way through, um, is what ultimately created the opportunity here. Because had I not done that other stuff, I would never have been in a position to, um, to, to, uh, to, to be able to sort of give technically and tactically, Tactically to those environments, and therefore would not have been good enough to be
0: to be involved. Um, so sa- sa- saying that again, though, I mean, first of all, you know, you have to have the acumen as a coach uh, to take that knowledge on board and to uh, put it into the correct, you know, way that it's taught, um, you know, in a, in a, in a cohesive manner in in a structured manner, but at the same time, um, you know, you're putting yourself on in the position, you know, uh, of really getting this, this incredible sets of information from all of these people. Um, That's not, uh, that's not something that a lot of our coaches in our country have had the opportunity to do. I think um, that's an important point I would like to make there yeah I think when, when if you were to look
1: at uh, over a 20-year period of coaches that have have taken or had the opportunity to experience uh, what I have had and what you have had I'm not sure I can think of anybody that's even you know comes close to to, to doing that but I think that's also a mindset like I think one of the things that British coaches have got to overcome is I got to give up my teaching job. I got to give up my nine to five job and I have to immerse myself full-time in basketball. And if that means I have to go back and I have to make 15,000 pounds a year, you know, 15,000 euros a year, then that's what that, you have to do. And that, and I think, it's, it's, I it's, think it's, that's, that's something that you and I share Sure, is that we have taken we have been prepared exactly. to take that opportunity, the gambles, the risks. You backed yourself and have said, "It doesn't matter where I'm from or what who I am or what I'm. I can do this." Mm. And I think,
0: I think that's it's, the biggest. It, it, it's a, well, I just wanted to say, um, actually now, and, and I want to make this point, you know, very clearly to the coaches that are listening. Um, we have a lot of coaches now that actually do our, resi- you know, residing in, in basketball in such a fault in a full-time type way. And we're talking mainly about the Academy coaches. We're not talking about, um, EBL one or BBL coaches, but mainly the Academy coaches. And unfortunately they do have a really tough, uh, a tough decision to make. They are in full time. It's a nice, comfortable position, likely not to be fired, um, likely not to lose their job or they've got to make the decision to, like you said, to do what you did um, and to a lesser extent what I did, which is to go, you know, and challenge yourself in in an international environment where the competition is, you know, considerably higher, you know, and Mm -hmm. we've both used the analogy that um, you can either be the big fish in in, in the small pond or you're going to be the small fish in in the big pond. And there's no doubt that when you're out there, you went to, you know, you're coaching in, in, in the G League which is you know the highest level in the world you know minus the NBA it is the NBA Um, and we both coached in you know in the rest of the international world And we know it's a it's a massive pond and we're up against Serbians and Greeks and Italians and Spanish coaches and these these guys have the same knowledge base as us and they even have this, you know more experience more repetition so it is tough and you've got to believe in yourself Um, let's move on absolutely absolutely yeah, let's move on to you know the next two national team jobs. Um, you know, firstly um, you move to Southeast Asia uh, and Thailand, um, and then subsequently from the Thailand job, you you get the, the head coach of Qatar, which you know in the Middle East. Talk to me about those two two experiences.
1: I mean, you know, Qatar, uh, the the Thailand job sort of just came out of the blue, really. It uh, and it was only going to be a summer opportunity to get them to qualify for uh, the asian games um and i that was the mindset i went there with my intention was to go back to toronto um jerry stackhouse was going to be the coach and we got to i got to thailand i was there for a short period of time we we basically uh finished silver in a in the Stankovic cup uh coming very close to beating the Philippines, which has never been done. And uh, we immediately, the organization, you know, wanted to, you know, make something more full time. And uh, the more we listened and the more that I've had, was able to input in terms of what I wanted for the first time, really, in terms of, you know, dictating, this is how, you know, what I want, this is where we're going to go. and this is, And I think we can make a difference. And it became the package just became extremely attractive for the first time, um, you know, outside of Japan, but in terms of financially. And uh, this is what's this? This is uh, 20, ten years 70. into yeah, yeah like ten years ten years into making a decision to go to be a professional coach. And this one I said to you earlier: it's a it's a ten year process. It's not you. And I think this is something else that coaches have got to understand is you may be successful in an academy in England. You may be successful at EBL one, but believe me, the challenges when you leave the UK are vastly different to the challenges that you face, you know, where you are. And it's not a one or two year process. You have to be prepared to do this for, I think, six to 10 years before you financially feel financially rewarded in terms of what you're doing. And for me, that's exactly what it was. It was 10 years. There was an opportunity to for to, to some financial sort of security. Um, and, you know, so we went from there. And we ha- we were successful. I felt that we were really successful. We were making headway in in uh, Thailand. We'd, we'd, we'd really done well in the competitions that we participated in. And, you know, like a lot of these countries in Asia, unfortunately, politics got you know, got in the way um, the, you know, the club that was overseeing it, there was a change in the Olympic committee with, you know, that they were then out of power and he wanted to, so, and these are the things you, never you know, you end up learning to deal with. Yeah. Um, but I think we, we set, we put a, a stamp on Southeast Asia basketball in terms of really open people's eyes in terms of the way that we could play with Thailand had never really made that push. And, uh, so I, my time finished in Thailand and I you know, taken it, we were on the cusp of, I think, changing, changing things dramatically. And unfortunately, like I say, politics got in the way of things and I came back and I actually got an opportunity, um, to go and be a consultant with the a team in the Philippines. And at the same time was a consultant to the Philippines national team. And to me, that was a huge, uh, feather in my cap because the Philippines has always been thought of within you know southeast asia asia um, as a powerhouse and here here's chuck ray is asking me to come and be a consultant uh, work on on certain things with the with the philippines national team so i went there i was there for three months got back and um while we had been in thailand we we had played qatar in the asian championships and uh you know big budgets, you know, supposed, you know, rank whatever in the world. And uh, it goes down to, we ha- literally, we had the ball to win the game and our guard bounces the ball off his foot. And uh, at that time, there was a guy called Fess Irvin who was working for Qatar. And six months to uh, three months later, two months later, Fess calls me and says, would you be interested in the head coaching job, the way you play, the way you coach, the way that you develop these players, the progression all the things that as a coach you aspire to really want people to appreciate for what you are, not, not the wins, not the losses, but like all those things that he talked about in terms of moving teams forward, which ultimately put you in a position to win. And, uh, you know, whatever it was that they, the Qatar got in touch and October I started there. And again, we, we, uh, we made, huge strides in Qatar you know we beat we played New Zealand uh beat New Zealand one out of two um in in friendly games at home which was which is a huge step for us in terms of the way that the program was moving we you know we the second round expected us to do that we ended up playing the Philippines in the Philippines you know we're we're up in a position to actually solidify us an opportunity to move forward and, uh, you know, we have a team implosion with, you know, management and staff and, you know, and players on the floor and, you know, but we were, we were heading in the right direction. And again, you know, here you are in the middle East and you're dealing with, you know, um, you want to do things in a professional manner in the right way. And, uh, and you've got your management, which are local, you know, people that are potentially played, but little knowledge and they don't, they want, they want you to do it in a way that's comfortable and easy and they can enjoy life and go out and do things and came to the end of my first year and they, they there was no changes on what we you know on what we wanted to do there was no there's no willingness on their part to adapt and uh, make see the program getting better and everybody you know there was a lot of conversation that was going throughout that southeast uh, or the middle east uh, and, and asia about how things had moved forward and then suddenly bang the same thing politically it just Yeah. And that's, that's life. And I think that's, that's the other thing that like I'm a fairly laid back, easygoing kind of guy. And I don't know that that helps with the, you know, you're going to get hired and you're going to get fired at some point. You know, there's very few coaches that get hired one time and they stay in that job for 50 years. Yeah, So that's part and parcel of coaching professional sport. Doesn't matter whether, I mean, look at soccer, look at anything. Um, and so Um, I've never felt despondent by that. Um, if anything, it's always encouraged me to, you know, seek out better opportunities and, um, you know, look at, look at what else is available.
0: This, this incredible 10 year period of your life, um, you know, encompassing highest levels of Europe, you know, highest levels of Asia, highest levels of Middle East, um, highest levels of world basketball, NBA, G League. Um, what are your kind of thoughts now, you know, like like you've seen that all with regards to, you know, being a British coach in that environment? You know, do you feel um, like... This you have to be absolutely, uh, you know, on your game. You know, well, did you ever feel, you know, almost disrespected at times? Um, what What were your thought processes to, towards that?
1: I mean, I, you know, I, I've never felt disrespected because I really don't care what other people think. Um, I back myself. Yeah, at the end of the day, I don't what other people think of me or what they think of your progression or what they think of your career path or how you got there or what you did. I know that I've invested a large proportion of my life to doing what I do and I need, and in order to be the best that I can be. And, um, so I've never, I've never worried about that stuff. Um, it's like I say, you back yourself, you know, you know, I back myself to be successful and to be able to continue to improve. I think, you have to be on point. You have to know what you're talking. You have to invest in your game. Um, you have to get out of a bubble that you're comfortable in uh, and stretch yourself. You have to be prepared to make mistakes uh, and you have to be prepared to be fired. And uh, I think there's a lot of people that fear that. You know, all of those those points. And I think if you fear that, then coaching is not the life for you. And
0: and, uh, and just, just on that, that's a really important, that's a great point. Coach, I, and that's something that um, I've not heard too many of our British coaches obviously talk about. Um, do you think that if you were, say, brought up in Greece or Spain or Italy, um, or you know, even to a lesser extent in the USA, you you would you would have that? You know, if you were in the system as a coach, you would feel that you would have that understanding, um, that kind of resiliency. Um, to that situation you would be ready for it or do you think that that's I think, something I think
1: uh, I, th- I, th- I th- there's two things I think coach development in countries like that is superior I think they produce more coaches, there are more opportunities for Italians or Greeks to coach professionally um, I also think that they are an environment where they see and understand that they can they see coaches hired and they see them fired and they see the hour. That, so they have a model that they, uh, uh, you know, that their expectations are met, not met, but they understand the expectations early on. Mm. I think the UK uh, and the BBL is very different. I think there are long-term coaches, um, you know, over the years, people have been in the league, they may lose, they may win. They stay in that environment and there's not necessarily a progression. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like at times there is pressure like in the UK for for, for some, some of those coaches and don't get me wrong. There are some coaches we talk about it all the time. There are a handful of coaches there that invest and have grown and you've seen the, the growth, but I think part of the BBL is that there's complacency. We just, we are, we're prepared to stay with the same there is, there's no real coach development going to, to the detail that we see overseas, that puts pressure on those coaches. There's no expectation whether they win or lose. But there's no fear of being fired. No, absolutely. And uh, you know, so I think that's just a very, it's a very different model. And uh, you know, does that sometimes hold the the BBL back? Yeah, I, you know, I think it probably does. I think that. We we are uh, we the the BBL or British Basketball within that context has allowed us to settle for uh, mediocrity. Mean, it may not be the right word, but yeah. complacency. Um, and and you know we don't challenge and we don't push and um, we see the same year in year out. So. Hmm. Interesting. And Interesting. I think going back to that, what you said, I think if you grew up in those countries in Spain and Italy, and think you always have in the back of your mind, I lose three games in a row, I make, I'm going to get fired. Absolutely. And so therefore, you inv- you invest. Yeah. You know, you don't become complacent. You invest in your game. You're continually trying to improve, and you have aspirations of moving from, you know, D C B A, you know, whatever it is, the levels of a league that you have. And I just sometimes I just think that we don't create that situation you know the same situation within within the uk
0: interesting um we need to move on just a little bit now so your thoughts on um british the british coaching fraternity um I, i know that you've got some thoughts on this and obviously um i've tried to um be you know articulate and eloquent in how I uh, say that people have not really followed and understood your story. And I find it quite uh, embarrassing. Um, So, you know, again, you know, did you ever, you know, you, you were, Ingrained in the British coaching fraternity when you were here, especially in that young uh, period of your life, the 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 coaching fraternity, the the, the national junior um, period. Um, But you know, now what what are your thoughts on it?
1: I i i have always i have always been passionate about British basketball, um, and still am. And I, you know, I, you know, regardless of whether people, you know, like I said to you before, I don't, that, that doesn't, you know, people not paying attention, not knowing whatever it, that that's irrelevant to me. you know, um, I, more than anybody, I would love to see British basketball competing in a Euro league environment, competing in a Euro cup environment, because I know we have the talent, you know, the ability to do that. If, it was, if it's to be done the right way. And um, I think, first and foremost, I've always been passionate about making sure that British players have the opportunity. And I, you know, there are some programs now that have embraced that and are starting to move forward. Um, I uh, The biggest frustration for me at all is that like, there's a lot of younger coaches that, that are out there that would benefit from... Uh, your experiences and benefit from from my experiences um, but I can I mean I don't think I've spoken to anybody I mean I've had a couple of coaches reach out um, but I think there's a lot of a lot of information that like I said you were talking earlier like you know 30 years of experience within basketball and 30 years of experience in basketball like 60 years combined of basketball and yet and and very different experiences to a lot of the coaches or a lot of the people that are involved with basketball, mm-hmm. that could help, or even help open doors for people elsewhere. And yet nobody, you
0: know, you, you they, just don't feel that they use you as a resource. I don't, do you think uh, that just, that? I mean, you know, we've obviously had these discussions. So, um, I mean, do you feel, you know, federation, you know, that's something that you know we we do a poor job of not just basketball, England, you know, British basketball reaching out, trying to bring, you know, people with expertise in, you know, even on a, you know, advisory type role. Um, Do you feel that 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 should have happened or could have happened? Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, for sure. Uh, Yeah, ultimately we're coaches and teachers and we want to, you know, as a coach and a teacher, you're always trying to impart knowledge or wisdom or help develop people. Um, and I think you have, you know, you, you have av- available resources to you and that's not just you and I, I mean, it's, it's a multitude of coaches that are around even coaches that, you know, may operate now in the BBL. Why, you know, why is Rob being so successful? Mm. You know, what is it that Rob Paternostra has done, <laughs> you know, to, to undoubtedly be one of the most successful coaches around in the, in the modern game, you know, in the modern time. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I'm out of the loop completely with British mm-hmm. English basketball and British basketball. Um, and that may well be my part of my doing in terms of, you know, you become focused on what you do in terms of your career. Um, and I haven't been back to the UK as regularly as you have. Mm. um, but at the same time, I also think that if you look at other federations and organizations around the world, they utilize people's experiences that, you know, we're getting to a point now where there are some bright young coaches coming through that could really do with, you know, direction and coach education. And this is, you know, adapting to a professional lifestyle, your next stage. Um, but, uh, and I that may be in place but I don't mm. know um, it's not something that that I've involved in My, you know I'm, I've am i always been happy to to volunteer time and talk to people or do whatever um, but uh, you know there's a change of management within both those organizations GB Basketball and with England Basketball and you know sometimes stuff just gets you know missed out or you know pushed under a carpet and forgotten about because it's just you know there's so many other things
0: going on we could talk and you know, we have just skirted over a lot of the your your career and you know philosophy and everything else, which I always um, you know, hate doing because there's just so many directions we can go on in these talks. But we've already been going for almost an hour and a half. So I, it might just, have
1: to be a, a part two totally. Yeah, it
0: must have to be a part two. So sure, let's <laughs> go with four quick questions to finish this up sure. with. Um sure. favorite drill um you know uh, yeah favorite favorite basketball drill or i oh, mean i mean there's
1: so many now i mean it's you know more over time one of the things you talked about was development like everything i do now is is as a young coach you kind of see things and put it in and it's never never connected to what you're doing and you know a lot of breakdown stuff i've you know you've streamlined in terms of what we do so everything's game related um and believe me you know when i say you know, I tell you, and you'll know this: like the best stuff is the basic stuff, because it underpins everything you're going to do, uh, no matter what. Um, I'm not a huge sets guy in terms of you know I want to play you know early reads and transition open offense. Um, so we, fo- you know, spent a lot of time on on that. You know, really being solid defensively, working on defensive transition, eliminating easy baskets for the opposition, forcing them to take analytically you know bad shots um so everything like it's really hard i mean there's so many drills that i and you and you know as you move forward you get your package starts like this and then your package becomes smaller and smaller because you realize that you know what it's the key stuff it's the fundamentals it's the basics that's repeated daily it becomes a habit you know aristotle has a great uh, you know, you, you know, you are repeat. You are what you do repeatedly. You are repeatedly what you do. Do what you are repeatedly, and it's awesome. When we were doing national teams, John Clark, who was with me, was the one that found that, and we had it on everything that we gave players. You know, you are what you repeatedly do, and it's about habit, and it's about run. You know, do so it's become really simple. The game is really simple and we make it complicated. And I found over the, that's one, you know, probably one of the things over the time is that there's a lot there's a lot of basic drills that I do that are game related. And we, you know, from two on two, three on three, four on four, we may, may not get to five on five at, at times. Um, but it helps you deliver the message, you know, on a, on a regular basis. So I, I don't know. I don't
0: think I could give you one. particular <laughs> right, okay. uh, go to favorite saying or statement. Is that what it is? Uh, what you say almost yeah, on, I a mean, daily you know, like, on a daily, t- daily abs- basis? I mean, we, you know, we, I've
1: always, you know, talked about just, um, habit is always on and just, you know, it, it was always referring to just habits, 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 you know, like, so I don't know that I've got a, a, go-to phrase, but I, there's, you know, there's probably a handful of things that just circle around that I catch myself saying, but, um,
0: yeah, I don't think there's a catchphrase. Okay. Favorite all time basketball coach. Um,
1: I mean, I've had the opportunity to work alongside some great people and, uh, you know, all time favorite. I, I don't, you know I I love what Popovich has always done in terms of just the simplicity and stuff that he does and have admired that and had an opportunity to be around the Spurs for a while um but I'm telling you now like the two guys that have been in both of our lives Nick Nurse and Chris Finch um uh, two, probably two of the best coaches I've ever seen in terms of the way that they they are able to master the game. And you know, Chris should be there. Nick is there, um, and that's been you know, a thing. So I think you know, for me, those two guys have you know they're
0: just phenomenal people, phenomenal, phenomenal coaches. Yeah that's a that's a great that's a great point. I mean now they they are they not their names are not out of place when we talk about that. That's the, Absolutely not. Absolutely you, not. No. Um always a tough one. You've coached so many players but favorite players to coach. You know, I had
1: a a lot of my uh, the, the young guys that I've coached have been some of the best like Jamel um Colin uh, miles, Zach, um, you know, along with people that went, you know, at, had the opportunity to work with that, you know, coach Andrew Sullivan, um, Diane Clark, you know, Richard Midgley, like a lot of the younger kids that I've been around. And then, you know, obviously being, having an opportunity to be around in a while in terms of his professionalism. Um, you know, there were two or three of those guys on that team, Andy Betts and Robert Archibald were, you know, phenomenal people and you know just in terms of thing but also their you know their, their game and the ability to absorb information and their knowledge you know from a british perspective and then you know I have an opportunity to be around a number of high- level you know witness being around a lot, a lot of high-level players so uh, yeah I you know i have an immense satisfaction from th- that younger generation of players that have been uh, been involved
0: Coach, uh, we got to wrap it up here now. Um, we, like I said, we could talk for um, more than three or four hours, uh, and and just go into some of the details. But um, I really appreciate it. I just want to say uh, thank you for being on this uh, timeout um, podcast. But more importantly, I hope that the coaches. Um, really, you know, try to take something from, from your story and from what you've done, you know, and what you've achieved because um, it is an incredible achievement for where you have gone. Um, and I hope that it inspires um, coaches to believe that they can get to that level um, if they, you know, are willing to take, you know, some degree of risk and also, you know, to push themselves, to, you know, to, to even further in their boundaries.
1: Uh, yeah, I, absolutely, and I think that's that's part you know part of us moving on and passing on and um, you know expectations of older coaches in order to help these young. We're not going to be able to do it, you know, for the rest of our lives. And there's going to be another another generation behind the next generation and behind the next generation. And ultimately, you have to share and you have to be prepared to to to, to help and promote. Um, especially when it's such a closed knit community that we have within British basketball with all the challenges and the hurdles that, that we have to face. Great. Thank you, coach. Really appreciate it. Tony, I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Time Out. You can now find all of our episodes on iTunes and Spotify. So please like, subscribe, and let us know who you'd like to hear from in a future episode.